Anything you can do, I can do better. Have you heard that song before? You probably have in your mind those old Nike commercials, or there's a competition between a, a man and a woman. But actually, the song originally comes from an old Broadway musical entitled Annie Get Your Gun. Uh, in that song, again, a man and a woman are in an argument about various things that they think that they can do better than one another. Uh, until Annie asks Frank, can you bake a pie? No, is the reply. And she says, well, neither can I. Um, I wonder if you have encountered a relational dynamic like that, where uh, have you ever run into someone who always seems to be perhaps just one step ahead of you, uh, just a little more successful. Uh, they've already done that. They've already read that book. Uh, they're just a little more committed. We, we can think of examples where that kind of relational dynamic is, is harmless. We can think of examples where that kind of relational dynamic might actually be harmful. But can you think of an example where it might actually be helpful, uh, helpful to you. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. That's actually a helpful and edifying approach to life in loving your fellow believer. It springs from the very heart of God who outdoes each one of us in showing love. This morning, as we open God's word to Psalm 132, we encounter a psalm where we find David and the people of God committed to the worship of God, pursuing the worship of God. And that's appropriate for a people making a journey to worship. But in this psalm, we remember that though, though we, though David, though the ancient people of God might be enthusiastically committed to the worship of God, God is even more enthusiastically committed to our worship. In love, He is committed to keeping His promises, which become the fuel of our praises. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. So if you haven't done so, let me invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 132. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find this Psalm on page 519. When you arrive at Psalm 132, you'll notice an inscription at the top. An inscription that says, A Song of Ascents. This is one of the 15 Psalms that Israelite pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to the temple in Jerusalem for worship, for one of those three annual feasts. We thought about them as the kind of ancient Israelite mixtape on their way to worship. These psalms were probably composed at different times in Israel's history, but compiled after what's known as the Babylonian exile. And I wonder if that phrase, Babylonian exile, makes sense to you. If I use it, do you understand what, what I'm talking about? Uh, where it's situated in the Bible's history. I think it's helpful to have a framework of the history of the Bible. Uh, and I want to try and summarize this whole thing to you in just a matter of a few minutes. If you wonder, how does this big book all fit together, here's my best attempt at that. Graham Goldsworthy and Vaughn Roberts have described the goal of the Bible as God bringing God's people into God's place under God's rule and blessing through God's king. God's people, God is bringing his people into his place under his rule and blessing through his king. That's one way we can summarize the whole storyline of the Bible. So think about how the Bible opens. It opens with God creating a place, a world, and the Garden of Eden, and setting his people, Adam and Eve, there in the garden. And they're there under his rule, under his commands. They may eat of every tree in the, in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. They rebelled against God's rule, his law. And so they were removed from God's place. 
the Garden of Eden. And the goal of the Bible from that point forward is fueled by a promise for God to send His Son to bring God's people back into God's place under God's rule and blessing through God's King and to do it in such a way that they will never lose the presence of God again. They will never be kicked out of His dwelling place, but that they will forever dwell with Him. Now, the, the history of the people of Israel, which is where our psalm is located, and it's located in their history. The history of the people of Israel actually recapitulates and replays that pattern in the Garden of Eden. So God forms a people in the nation of Israel. He establishes His rule by giving them a law, promising even a, rule, a ruler and king in that law. And He then brings His people into the promised land of Canaan. It's described a lot like the Garden of Eden. And sadly, like Adam and Eve, the people of Israel rebel against God's law. So they're removed from Canaan. And just like Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden for their sin. Adam and Eve were exiled from, their, from God's place, the Garden. And Israel, for her sin, she was exiled from the land of Canaan. And in the exile, many of them were taken captive by the Babylonians. And so that's the context in which our psalm was sung. People coming out of that captivity and returning into the land, having a hope that God would send His promised King, a son of David, who would bring them forever into God's eternal presence, in which they could not be lost. And really, that's the nutshell of the Old Testament. That's the history of the Old Testament in a nutshell. And what this history cultivates within us as we read the Old Testament is the longing for that faithful son of Adam, that faithful king who will obey God's law for God's people. And so bring God's people into God's place that it can never be lost again. And the Old Testament, it focuses those promises on a son of David. That's who our psalm this morning is actually focused upon. David and his sons. And the people who were coming out of the Babylonian exile were reminding themselves of the promises that God made to them. Promises to bring them into his place under his blessing and ruler. They were remembering that God was committed to these promises. Psalm 132 is actually the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. It's roughly double the average length of the Psalms in this stretch of the Psalter. The Psalm's length probably gives us a clue to its importance, its centrality in the life and hope of every Israelite. Several themes are covered and recovered in this Psalm, but the two biggest themes are the dueling oaths that come out. David makes an oath, and God makes an oath. What David commits to, God commits to in an even greater way. Let's look at these oaths. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here's David's oath, Psalm 132, verses 1 and 2. Remember, O Lord Yahweh, in David's favor all the hardship he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And then we get David's oath in the following verses. But now skip down to verses 11 and 12 where we see the beginning of the Lord's oath there in verses 11 and 12. The Lord Yahweh swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Well, these two O's, they show us really the two halves that this psalm falls into. In verses 1 to 10, we have the call to remember David's promise, David's oath, and the people's pleas associated with them. That's where we discover that like David and the ancient people of God, we too should be committed to the Lord's worship. Then, in verses 11 to 18, really the second half of the psalm, we remember the Lord's promises to David and to his people. This is where we discover that God is committed to our worship. 
just as he was in days gone by. Together, these two sections of the psalm teach us that we should commit ourselves to God's worship, remembering that it is God himself who is committed to our worship and seeing us worship him in glory and his son of David, Jesus. Through the promised son of David, God will bring his people into his place under his rule and blessing. There we will worship him forever in glory and in bliss. Here's the main idea. The main kind of takeaway for you for this psalm today. Commit yourself to God's worship, remembering that God is committed to your worship. Let's take a closer look at this psalm now. Let's consider the first half and our first point. Commit yourself to God's worship. Follow along as I read Psalm 132, verses 1 to 10. Psalm 132, verses 1 to 10. Remember, O Lord Yahweh, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant, David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Well, this psalm opens with a, a series of pleas, and the first seven verses or so focus in on David and his promises. Uh, in the first half, we have the author and first singers of the psalm calling for the Lord especially to remember David and his promises. They, they call for God to remember how David and the ancient people of God were committed to and pursued the worship of God. Notice that word, remember. Now, it's not as though God has forgotten His promises to His people. No, this word, remember, in the Old Testament has with the idea that the people of God want God to be committed to and express and act on their behalf in accordance with His promises. God knows all things, remembers all things. They're calling God to act. They're calling God to act in light of all the hardship that David endured in his faithfulness to God. The psalm has in mind David's efforts really to recover the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it into Jerusalem. Uh, in the ancient worship of the people of God, they had a tabernacle or a temple, and situated in the very heart of that temple was known as the Ark of the Covenant. It was God's footstool. Uh, think of it like a, a king. He sits on a throne, and his feet rest on a footstool. Well, the, the imagery that this is presenting to us is that God reigns in heaven and his feet touch the earth. It's where he connects and dwells with his people. He lives with them. He meets with them. So this is central to the worship of the ancient people of God. It was supposed to dwell there in the tabernacle. But it was no easy task for David to bring the ark into Jerusalem because years earlier, the ark was actually lost to the Philistines in battle. And after the Philistines drove it away, after the troubles they faced when holding on to it, it rested untouched at a house in kiriath Jerem. After David claimed the throne, he sought to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But there was trouble on the way. Those who were transporting the ark actually put it on an ox cart against God's commands of how the ark was to be transported. And it started to fall off the ark, and a man named Uzzah reached out his hand to touch it. And God struck him dead. And that struck fear into the heart of David. And so the ark went and rested in another house for three months. David was afraid, he prayed, and then he decided to continue the quest of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Finally, he does this. He does it with worship and joy. 
But this very long road of consolidating the kingdom, uh, defeating the Jebusites, conquering Jerusalem was where the temple was going to be. And defeating the Philistines and recovering the ark was one that was filled with hardship for David. And then as we read earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, he was actually denied the privilege of building the temple, God's house. Remember, he, he wanted to do that. And that was undoubtedly an emotional hardship for David as well. He loved the Lord. He loved the Lord's worship. He wanted to see God dwell in a house. When David had a great house, but the Lord was in this tent that had existed for 400 years. Some of us have tents that have only been around for four years, and they're in really bad shape. Well, this tent existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and David saw this, and he wanted the Lord honored by a real, physical building place. But God told him, no, you will not build this, this house. I'm actually going to build your house. He's going to build up David's dynasty. One of his sons would build God's house. So after David is kind of denied this opportunity of building the temple, David actually still remains committed to supplying what's needed to build the temple. So we read about this in 1 Chronicles 22. David, he gives himself to tirelessly collecting everything that's needed in order to build the temple so that when Solomon takes the throne, he can begin that task of building up the house of God. In the end, David was determined to honor the Lord, even through hardship. Through physical hardship, through emotional hardship. That's what the writers and singers of the songs are, are calling the Lord to remember. Remember all the efforts, the commitment that David laid out in order for your worship to take place. David's determination to honor the Lord through the hardship, it springs from a promise. We see there in verses 3 and 4. Do you see those promises? He won't enter his house or build his house until the Lord has a house. He won't sleep. He won't rest until the Lord has a place to rest. In three different ways... David's commitment is expressed. It underscores his conviction, his dedication, his devotion, energy, fortitude, and resolve to see the ark of God make it to the city of God where the people of God can engage in the worship of God. This is a model, really. David's life becomes a model for all other kings to follow after him. The kings who came after David would need to imitate his zeal for God's house and zeal for God's worship. But as we know, the history of Israel unfolds. There was only one son of David who was so consumed and even more consumed and committed than David. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that after watching Jesus clear the temple of money changers, that his disciples remembered that it was written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. David, he was committed to the Lord's glorious worship. And central to that worship was the, ta the tabernacle, the ark of God that took place there. And verses 6 and 7, they poetically retell the recovery of the ark. And notice there's a, a hearing, a finding, a moving, and then a call to worship, all embedded in these two verses. The hearing took place in Ephrathah. That refers to the kind of broader locality of Judah, where David was from. Think of it like um, Bethlehem being a city and Ephrathah being a county. This is likely recalling David hearing the story of the ark being lost when he was in his home territory. And this would have cultivated a longing in his own heart and the heart of every faithful Israelite for God to be worshipped and glorified by seeing that ark returned to its rightful place among the people of God. Then there was that finding of the ark there in Jaar. Uh, that appears to be just another name for Kiriath-Jerim where the ark stayed for about 20 years. And then there's this moving. The people of God exclaim, let us go to worship. David's commitment to the worship of God was consummated in a call to worship. Notice the call goes out to all. Let us go. We've moved from the commitment of one Israelite, verses 1 to 5, to a call to worship for all of Israel there in verses 6 and 7. Beloved, I think that there's a lot that we can learn for this for our own hearts and lives. 
we can learn from David's commitment to God's worship. David was determined and dedicated to God's worship and willing to endure hardship for it. David was even willing to build up God's house before he built his own house, his own dynasty. David wanted God's presence among God's people. That's why he pursued the recovery of the ark in the first place. But there's one greater than David who's done the same for us. Think of all the hardships that the Lord Jesus Christ endured for us so that it would make our worship even possible today. Jesus tabernacled or dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that. He lived a life of suffering among sinners who scorned him, and yet the zeal for God's house consumed him. The Son of Man truly had no place to lay or rest his head. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 tells us that about Jesus. The, the temple of his body was destroyed. And praise God, it was raised again three days later. We read about that in John chapter 2, verse 19. The Gospel of John also teaches us that the temple of God, the place where we meet God for worship now, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was dedicated to bringing sinners like us to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Jesus is building up God's house even now. And we should stand amazed that Jesus has called us into His worship. And we should be committed to His worship. This is why David is actually a worthwhile model for every Christian. Not just every ancient king in Israel, but every Christian. If David was committed to the worship of God in the grace that he knew in the Old Covenant, how much more should we who enjoy the glories of the new covenant, be committed to the worship of God for the grace that we know in Jesus Christ. We should seek to promote and privilege the worship of God. We should privilege the worship of God, both public and private, above all other things, even sleep, just like David. So yes, instead of getting that extra hour, you should turn up here on the Lord's Day. If you can get to work every other day of the week by, say, roughly 9 a.m., you can certainly get to church by 10.30, or even Sunday school by 9.30. But as a reminder, not during the month of August. Build up God's house. Uh, build up God's house by being here. By being with God's people. Build up God's house by serving in hospitality. Build up God's house by serving in Sunday school. But again, not in the month of August. Thank you uh, to those of you who have said that yes, you, you do want to be involved in that. You want to be involved with teaching and catechizing and evangelizing the children of our church. You are building up God's house. It's going to take time out of your schedule and week. But you're committing to and encouraging the worship of God by serving this way. And I think the Lord is honored. Build up God's house by setting aside the first chunk of your finances for giving it to the work of the gospel. When we think about the income that we receive from our labors, we should think about giving to the church, paying our bills, saving for emergency spending, blessing others in need, and then extra can be used for recreation. We should make sure that those things are in proper biblical balance and proper biblical order. Give as the Lord enables you. It builds up his house, and it shows your commitment to his worship. And David's commitment, his commitment to God's worship, it led others into worship. David's commitment led to a call to worship. So there's a question for you. Does your commitment to God's worship lead to a call for others to join you in worship? Do others in your life hear about how your life is actually centered around the local church and the worship of God? Do, do they hear you say... Oh, I'm not going to the soccer game on Sunday. I'm going to church. Do you want to come with me? you want to join me? Uh, when friends ask you about what you did over the weekend, do you tell them, I went to church. Have you, have you ever been to church? Do you want to go to church with me? I'd love for you to join me some Sunday. Even this Sunday. Are you up to something? What about the next Sunday? No? But the one after that? Beloved, let's be committed to God's worship. So committed that we call others to join us for it. And part of that, we must remember, begins with the attitude 
of wanting to go to church. It's not that we have to go to church, though it is our Christian duty. It is not that we get to go to the church, as though we are permitted to do so, and we are. It is a heart that is pleased to praise God, which will invite others to His worship. It's the heart that says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our hearts should be glad. We need to invite others into worship. But do you know who else we need to invite into worship? God Himself. We actually did that this morning when we opened our service with the prayer of invocation. The prayer of invocation is simply a prayer asking God to be present with us, to inhabit our verses. And that's what's happening, really, in verses 8 to 10. Verses 8 to 10, the people are making a series of pleas to the Lord. And it effectively amounts to a request for the Lord to attend their worship. Arise, Lord, and go to your resting place. Go to the place of the ark of your might. Come on, come and join us. Dwell with us. Inhabit our worship. It's a request for God to be present. And it strikes me that this is actually probably a clue to us that Solomon was involved in writing a portion of this psalm. Well, it's not attributed to him. We do know that Solomon was, of course, involved with building the temple. And at the end of his prayer, the completion of the temple, he actually prays these same verses in 8 to 10. We read them in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 41 and 42. I wonder, just stepping back for a moment, do you want God to be present in our worship? As you walk to church, or ride your bike to church, or drive to church, or commute through other ways, is this really one of your prayers? Arise, Lord, and meet us there. Oh, Lord, would you inhabit? Would you be present? Would you dwell with us in worship? Would you make your presence known to us? Make it a habit of making that prayer on your way to church week by week. What good is it if we gather, but God doesn't gather with us in our worship? Even more personally, if we through Jesus Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul tells us we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, have you invited God to dwell in you? Have you asked the Lord to come and make His presence known in your heart and life? That begins by bowing your heart in worship to Jesus. Friend, ask Him to come and to fill you with His Spirit and give you the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of this psalm's prayer is that the Lord would clothe His priests and bless His people. Did you see that in, verses, in verse 9? The priests not only needed to be clothed externally by the garments that were prescribed for them in the law of God, but they needed to be internally and ethically clothed in righteousness. But notice where this prayer looks to for that righteousness. This prayer looks to the Lord for such clothing. It's a call for the Lord to clothe His priests in righteousness. Men can put on external garments, but only God can grant inward righteousness to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. The beauty and glory of God's work of grace in Jesus Christ is that God has done this in the lives of His people. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Christian, did you know that Jesus, you've been made a priest through being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that because of Jesus, Christians are a holy priesthood commissioned to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have been, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, set apart to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. While God has done this work in us, while He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, thereby making us acceptable worshipers and our worship acceptable in His sight, He also calls us to live out 
that righteousness. We should day by day clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ, not in a saving sense, but in a sanctified sense. That we are committed to living lives that reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, puts it like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are called to be holy. And we're called to be happy that God has made us holy. Beloved, do you rejoice that God has made you a priest and clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? A righteousness not your own, but a righteousness that comes from Jesus, our Savior. It should cause us to shout for joy, right? That God has made us saints, set us apart for salvation in Jesus Christ should cause us to shout for joy. There's a sense in which our services should be loud. It shouldn't be loud because the volume is turned way up or loud because there's kind of random shouting. They should be loud with praises to God, well-ordered praises. Christian, give yourself to the loud praises of God and ask God to give our worship a sense of gravity and joy. One of the things I find so interesting about verse 10 is that Solomon and the pleas of later generations of God's people includes a request for God to look on his messianic Prince, Do you see those, that phrase, anointed one, there in the text? That refers to the Messiah. There in the Hebrew, it's the word for the Messiah. The final plea of the first half of this psalm is a request for the Lord to remember His covenant promises to David and for the sake of those promises to look favorably upon the anointed one, the Messiah. If you remember our reading from 2 Samuel 7, earlier in the service, you'll remember that God promised to bless David's house with sons. And he promised him that one day one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. Here the people of God are asking God to keep his covenant promises. In its original context, that would have meant that the people wanted God to deal favorably with their king and accept their worship. As if to say, accept our worship because of your Messiah, your king. We say the same thing today, don't we? We ask God to accept our praises because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who gives us access to God's throne. If the original singers of this psalm were asking that, so should we. The original singers of the psalm were also asking God to fulfill His messianic promises, to send His Messiah, the anointed one who would sit on David's throne forever, and because of Him, bless the worship of God's people forever. We ask something similar today, don't we? Don't we ask for God to keep His promises, to send His Son a second time, to consummate history and to bring us into the eternal, His eternal presence for glorious worship. Indeed, we do make that request of God. When we say, come, Lord Jesus, we should be committed to God's worship here on earth because we will be committed to God's worship in eternity. We're formed here for worship there. We're committed to God's worship here, and God is committed to getting us to worship Christ there. Yes, we should be committed to God's worship But the good news of Psalm 132 is that our commitment to God's worship is outstripped by God's commitment to our worship. Our zeal for God's house is far surpassed by God's zeal to bring us into His house. That's what the second half of our psalm focuses on. Verses 11 to 18 are a meditation on God's promise to build David's house in 2 Samuel 7. So let's turn then and consider our second point, that God is committed to your worship. Follow along as I read verses 11 to 18. Now. The Lord swore to David a sure oath 
from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Here, in these verses, we have the privilege of remembering the Lord's promises to David and his people. Whereas David's promises only took up three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. God's promises take up 8, verses 11 to 18. You can't out-promise God. After all, in these glorious verses, we find the Lord making promises concerning David's progeny, verses 11 and 12. Promises concerning the Lord's place, verses 13 and 14. Promises concerning His people's provision, verse 15. Promises concerning bread for the poor, verse 15. Promises concerning His priest, verse 16. Promises concerning His people's pleasure, verse 16. Promises concerning the Lord's messianic prince, verse 17. Promises concerning His enemy's punishment, verse 18. And promises concerning the Messiah's prestige, verse 18. You cannot out-promise God. And you can't be more committed than God. David had two I will statements in verses 3 and 4. But look at these seven I will statements that we have from the Lord in these verses. Verse 11, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Verse 14, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. Verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provisions. Again in verse 15, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Verse 16, her priest I will clothe with salvation. Verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. Verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame. There's a sense in which we should be overwhelmed by the Lord's promises and his unwavering commitment here in these verses. You cannot out-promise the Lord and you cannot be more committed to the Lord. As I said a minute ago, these verses are a meditation on God's promise to build David's house in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read earlier in the service. This is perhaps most clearly seen in the Lord's promises concerning David's progeny there in verses 11 and 12. As you look at those verses, you look at verses 11 and 12, you'll see that they're a poetic retelling of what we read earlier in the service. In that passage, in 2 Samuel 7, there's actually a play on the word house. It's used in different senses. So David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build a physical temple for God. But God told him no and said, instead, I will build your house. A play on the word meaning his dynasty. His progeny, his sons. The dynasty would come through his sons. Now, there's something special about that promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So special that we refer to it as the Davidic covenant. That God made a commitment to David and his sons. In 2 Samuel 7, God's promise made plain that one of his sons, far down the line, would have an eternal reign. Now notice that this covenant is somewhat conditional. You see there in verse 12. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. This same promise emerges in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised to be a father to David's sons. That is, he would discipline them if they disobey. 
This is important because a father disciplines his son, but he does not cut him off from his relationship with him. Instead, he chastens and chastises him and yet still receives him as a son. And as the history of Israel unfolded, we see that son after son who followed David disobeyed God's covenant and testimonies. When the king sinned, when someone like Solomon or those kings after him sinned, the nation actually suffered. And so son after son was disciplined. And the nation of Israel even suffered discipline as a whole. The exile were being removed from God's place. They were kicked out of the land of Canaan. And the Davidic covenant shows us that in order for one of David's sons to reign forever, for all eternity, he would have to perfectly keep God's laws and testimonies. This covenant shows us that God would keep giving David sons, keep giving David progeny, so that God's promise would not fail. The covenant was not dependent upon man, but upon God. Though David's sons and the kings of Judah were often faithless throughout their history, God remained faithful. God was so committed to his covenant with David that after long years of exile and silence, he sent his own son into the world. The eternal son of God was born of the Virgin Mary and in the line of David. So Matthew tells us when he opens the New Testament, he opens the New Testament with these words, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The gospel of Matthew then goes on to show us that Jesus, he was the perfect son of David. He was sinless, unlike all the other sons of David who went before him. And unlike the history of the nation of Israel, where the people suffered for the sins of their king, Jesus suffered for the sins of his people. He was crucified and killed, cut off from the land of the living, not because he had done anything wrong, but because he had done everything right. Not because he failed to keep God's laws and testimonies. He had actually done every one. He was faithful. He was cut off. He was crucified. He was put to death so that his people would be forever accepted into God's glorious dwelling place. Friend, this is your hope. God's commitment to save his people is found in Jesus Christ. Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus? Friend, believe that Jesus lived for you the righteous life that you've not lived. Believe that Jesus died for you, bearing the punishment that your sins deserve. Believe that Jesus was raised from the grave, rebuilding the temple three days after his death, the temple of his body. Come to him and you will be forever welcomed into the glorious dwelling place of God. Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith in him? This is how we are received as precious in God's sight and saved from our sin. Run to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and you will reign with him for all eternity. The Lord was committed to his Davidic covenant. He provided the perfect Davidic king in Jesus. And the Lord was also committed to his place. That's what we see in verses 13 and 14. God loved Zion. He had chosen it. He desired it. He purposed to dwell there. In the Old Testament, God had purposely determined to make his presence known there. And he did so in order to picture where his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and final son of David, would reign in the heavenly Mount Zion. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah teach us that God will establish the throne of His Son in the new Jerusalem, that great heavenly city. Beloved Jesus has gone before us now to prepare a place for us, just as our brother Neil reminded us from John chapter 14, verse 2, early in the service. That's part of the goal of the Bible. 
God is committed to bringing His people into His place under His rule and blessing. Indeed, we're given a picture of that in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. We heard them already in our service, but hear these words again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The promises and images that flow or follow from this point forward in the psalm, especially in verses 15 to 17, are ultimately experienced in the final consummation of all things. When Jesus is enthroned and he's doling out the blessings of his kingdom. Some of them, we can say, are still experienced partially and temporally, even now. So notice in verse 15, that God promised to abundantly bless Zion's provisions. While there was some measure of blessing as the exiles returned from captivity, we see that these promises really come to fruition in the new covenant. I mean, think about these promises. Look at them. Aren't they not an idyllic picture? God's people have all they need supplied in every way in terms of their provision. The poor are amply supplied with bread. We're being told in verse 15 that in every material need, God's people have have been met and multiplied so that they're satisfied. A small glimpse of heaven on earth, if you remember, was shown in the picture of the early church. When in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we're told that the local church shared what they all had in common. And that those in need, their, their needs were met and provided for by what the church shared together. Church, we know, uh, still has poor among us. And we seek to meet those needs through our benevolence fund and through other places. But we know that this is really only a glimpse of what will be true, certainly, and finally, and consummately, in glory. While we should absolutely do our best to ensure that God's people among us are well provided for, it won't be until the consummated kingdom when every last material need is met. And given verse 16, and how God, you see there, meets really the spiritual needs of His people, I think that we can even understand verse 15 in a spiritual sense too. Here's why. Just after uh, Mary, God promised Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah, she sings a song. And in that song of salvation, she declares in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, that He has filled the hungry with good things. Indeed, He has. For in Jesus Christ, our souls are satisfied by the bread of life. In John's Gospel, Jesus, He not only feeds the 5,000, but He also proclaims that He's the bread that's come down from heaven. He promises in John chapter 6, verse 35, that whoever comes to Him shall not hunger. Verse 16, in many ways, it's God's answer to the request of verse 9. Remember verse 9? The people pled, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. And then we have verse 16. This is God's reply. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Don't you love it when God answers your requests? When He answers our prayer requests? That's what He's saying here. He's saying yes to their request. Though we can't see it in our English translations, the Hebrew of verse 16 seems to be even more enthusiastic than the Hebrew of verse 9. Some translations put the latter half of verse 16 like this. Her saints will shout aloud for joy. Her godly people will shout exuberantly. Matthew Henry wisely said that God gives more than we ask. And when He gives salvation, He will give abundant joy. Here again we see that God is indeed committed to the worship of His people. He is especially pleased uh, to grant requests to bless our worship, to answer those requests. 
We ask Him to do something good, and He promises to give something even better. That is just like our God. And verses 17 and 18, they, they conclude this psalm with the promise of the Messiah's coming, His conquest, and His crowning. The people have asked God to look on David with favor and to remember His covenant promises. And God here tells them He remains committed to His promises. These last two verses would have been so comforting and encouraging to the ancient people of God and for them to sing. Just think about their situation. Given that these psalms were likely compiled after the Babylonian exile, they were without a king. So here are people singing this psalm, asking for God to send a king. And they don't have a king or the prospect of him having a son follow after him. The best that they could do during that time was a governor named Zerubbabel. From all that they could see, the horn of David had apparently been cut off. In the ancient world, horns were, of course, symbols of strength. But from all that the ancient people of God to see, there was no strength in Israel. The throne of David had apparently been cut off. For hundreds of years after the exile, it seemed like God's promises would fail. After all, Israel is constantly ruled by other nations, not by their own king. But verses like Psalm 132, verse 17, engendered hope in the ancient people of God. God would perform a miracle. He would make a horn to sprout. Horns don't ordinarily grow after being cut off. But God told His people that He was so committed to His promises and to their worship of Him that He would make a horn to sprout for David. This is similar to the prophetic promises that we read about in places like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There's an image of a stump, and yet a shoot springs up from the side of the stump. We read this in Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Just when it seemed like the strength and glory of the Davidic covenant had come to an end, God would cause that horn to bud. He would give Israel a descendant of David who would rule as king. He would come seemingly out of nowhere. And when God promised that He has prepared a lamp for my anointing, He's actually just saying the very same thing of the previous line. It's kind of a parallelism we have here. This phrase refers to God promising to set a descendant of David on His throne. You can read about that, this lamp, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36, and 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4, where God promises that He will uh, provide a lamp for David in Jerusalem, setting up a son after Him and establishing his throne. God promised to raise up son after son of David until the final and faithful son came. And it would be that final and faithful son who would lead God's people into God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And these promises of a horn and a lamp are undoubtedly prophetic predictions of Jesus. Do you remember what Zechariah said in his song in the opening of Luke's gospel? Luke chapter 1 verses 68 and 69 we read this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. That's in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke where we're thinking about the coming of the Messiah. We're not wrong to remember that when the Gospel of John opens, that Jesus brings light into this dark world. Or that in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're not wrong to remember that when Jesus begins His ministry in Matthew's Gospel, that the words of Isaiah are fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. Yes, the, the promises of God in Psalm 132, verse 17, point forward to the coming of Jesus, David's greater son, and therefore of God's commitment to His covenant and to His people's worship. But these promises not only speak of Jesus' coming, do you notice they also speak of Jesus' conquest and of His crowning. Read verse 18 again. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on Him His crown will shine. This, this is a vision of the end. Enemies subdued and a shining crown. This is what happens in Jesus, in His resurrection from the dead, when He defeats our enemies of sin and death. And it is what will fully and finally happen in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus reigns on the heavenly Mount Zion. Jesus has defeated our enemies and His enemies. And one day, He will return to consummate His reign. And on that day, the Scriptures tell us that His enemies will be resurrected to everlasting shame. We read about that at the end of the book of Daniel. But His people will be resurrected to everlasting joy. In the book of Revelation, we're told over and over again that Jesus reigns in victory over His enemies. And we're given song after song for the saints to sing in honor to their King. Here's just one example from Revelation chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is for you, have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Revelation reminds us that Jesus has and will conquer his enemies. And when we think of the crown of the Lord Jesus shining in the end, it's hard not to remember Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, the very end of the Bible where we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Do you see how Psalm 132 Verses 11 and 8 show us that God is committed to His promises to David and bringing us into His worship because of the great Son of David. How God is committed to our blessing and our bliss. So here's my question for you. In light of God being committed to bringing His people into His place, under His rule, through His King, will you be there? Will you be in that great blessed assembly who sings praise to the mighty God. Have you bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus and submitted your heart and life to Him, following in His way, trusting in Him for your salvation? Will you commit your life to Him in view of His commitment to redeem sinners and bring them to glory? Friend, He will not turn you away. All those who come to Him and believe upon Him, He will not cast out. So come to Him. Remember how God was committed to His promises, to His Prince who is Messiah, the great son of David, and saving his people. Remember that he is still committed to seeing his people worship not only here, but also in glory. Christian, your reigning with Christ is not in doubt. You will dwell with God, and God will dwell with you. And as we conclude, I want us to think a little more about what we had in common, have in common, with the ancient people of God who first sang this song. Beloved, we need to remember that these songs were compiled, as I said, shortly after the Babylonian captivity. For the people of God in that day, the future was dark and foreboding. 
It was uncertain. They couldn't see what God was doing. They couldn't imagine how God would make a horn to sprout for David or how he would establish his dwelling place with his people. It was a situation that seemed hopeless. But to those with true faith, they did not give up hope and they kept singing this song. Sometimes you just need to keep singing the songs of God, remembering the promises of God, remembering that God, He was committed to bringing His messianic prince, establishing His heavenly place, and caring for His beloved people. They were still committed to the worship of God, even though they could not see the future. And God remained committed to bringing them into the worship of His glorious kingdom. Beloved, like saints of old, we don't hope in the things that we can see. We don't hope in the might of money or in good government, or the strength of self. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction for things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Like the saints of old, we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Just as the saints of old before us continue to trust the promises of God, so should we. Our Lord has said to us that He will come again and bring us to Himself. Remain committed to and confident in your God. For He remains committed to you and to your worship in the glory of Emmanuel's land. You will be there because He will bring you there. Give your heart to Him and worship Him. Let's pray together.